Emily was shocked to observe the perverted understanding and obstinate temper of Madame Montoni. But, not less grieved for her sufferings, she looked round for some alleviating circumstance to offer her. "'Your situation is, perhaps, not so desperate, dear madam,' said Emily, "'as you may imagine. The Signor may represent his affairs to be worse than they are, for the purpose of pleading a stronger necessity for his possession of your settlement. Besides, so long as you keep this, you may look forward to it as a resource, at least, that will afford you a competence, should the Signor's future conduct compel you to sue for separation. Madame Montoni impatiently interrupted her. Unfeeling, cruel girl, said she, and so you would persuade me, that I have no reason to complain, that the Signor is in very flourishing circumstances, that my future prospects promise nothing but comfort, and that my griefs are as fanciful and romantic as your own? Is it the way to console me, to endeavour to persuade me out of my senses and my feelings, because you happen to have no feelings yourself? I thought I was opening my heart to a person who could sympathise in my distress, but I find that your people of sensibility can feel for nobody but themselves. You may retire to your chamber. Emily, without replying, immediately left the room, with a mingled emotion of pity and contempt, and hastened to her own, where she yielded to the mournful reflections which a knowledge of her aunt's situation had occasioned. The conversation of the Italian with Valancourt in France again occurred to her. His hints respecting the broken fortunes of Montoni were now completely justified. Those, also, concerning his character, appeared not less so, though the particular circumstances connected with his fame to which the stranger had alluded yet remained to be explained notwithstanding that her own observations and the words of Count Morano had convinced her that Montoni's situation was not what it formerly appeared to be. The intelligence she had just received from her aunt on this point struck her with all the force of astonishment, which was not weakened when she considered the present style of Montoni's living, the number of servants he maintained, and the new expenses he was incurring, by repairing and fortifying his castle. Her anxiety for her aunt and for herself increased with reflection. Several assertions of Murano, which, on the preceding night, she had believed were prompted either by interest or by resentment, now returned to her mind with the strength of truth. She could not doubt that Montoni had formally agreed to give her to the Count, for a pecuniary reward. His character and his distressed circumstances justified the belief. These, also, seemed to confirm Murano's assertion, that he now designed to dispose of her, more advantageously for himself to a richer suitor. Amidst the reproaches which Murano had thrown out against Montoni, he had said he would not quit the castle 
he dared to call his, nor willingly leave another murder on his conscience, hints which might have no other origin than the passion of the moment. But Emily was now inclined to account for them more seriously, and she shuddered to think that she was in the hands of a man to whom it was even possible they could apply. At length, considering that reflection could neither release her from her melancholy situation or enable her to bear it with greater fortitude, she tried to divert her anxiety and took down from her little library a volume of her favourite Ariosto. But his wild imagery and rich invention could not long enchant her attention. His spells did not reach her heart, and over her sleeping fancy they played, without awakening it. She now put aside the book, and took her lute, for it was seldom that her sufferings refused to yield to the magic of sweet sounds. When they did so, she was oppressed by sorrow that came from excess of tenderness and regret, and there were times when music had increased such sorrow to a degree that was scarcely endurable, when, if it had not suddenly ceased, she might have lost her reason. Such was the time when she mourned for her father and heard the midnight strains that floated by her window near the convent in Languedoc on the night that followed his death. She continued to play till Annette brought dinner into her chamber, at which Emily was surprised, and inquired whose order she obeyed. My lady's, mademoiselle, replied Annette. The signor ordered her dinner to be carried to her own apartment, and so she has sent you yours. There have been sad doings between them, worse than ever, I think. Emily, not appearing to notice what she said, sat down to the little table that was spread for her. But Annette was not to be silenced thus easily. While she waited, she told of the arrival of the men, whom Emily had observed on the ramparts, and expressed much surprise at their strange appearance as well as at the manner in which they had been attended by Montoni's order. "'Do they dine with the Signor, then?' said Emily. "'No, mademoiselle, they dined long ago, in an apartment at the north end of the castle, but I know not when they are to go, for the Signor told old Carlo to see them provided with everything necessary. They have been walking all about the castle,' and asking questions of the workmen on the ramparts. I never saw such strange-looking men in my life. I am frightened whenever I see them. Emily inquired if she had heard of Count Morano, and whether he was likely to recover. But Annette only knew that he was lodged in a cottage in the wood below, and that everybody said he must die. Emily's countenance discovered her emotion. Dear mademoiselle, said Annette, to see how young ladies will disguise themselves when they are in love. I thought you hated the Count, or I am sure I would not have told you, and I am sure you have cause enough to hate him. I hope I hate nobody, replied Emily, trying to smile, but certainly I do not love Count Morano. 
I should be shocked to hear of any person dying by violent means. Yes, mademoiselle, but it is his own fault. Emily looked displeased, and Annette, mistaking the cause of her displeasure, immediately began to excuse the Count in her way. To be sure, it was very ungentle behaviour, said she, to break into a lady's room, and then, when he found his discoursing was not agreeable to her, to refuse to go, and then, when the gentleman of the castle comes to desire him to walk about his business, to turn round and draw his sword, and swear he'll run him through the body. To be sure, it was very ungenteel behaviour, but then he was disguised in love, and so did not know what he was about. Enough of this, said Emily, who now smiled without an effort, and Annette returned to a mention of the disagreement between Montoni and her lady. It is nothing new, said she. We saw and heard enough of this at Venice, though I never told you of it, mademoiselle. Well, Annette, it was very prudent of you not to mention it then. Be as prudent now, the subject is, an unpleasant one. Ah, dear mademoiselle, to see now how considerate you can be about some folks, who care so little about you. I cannot bear to see you so deceived, and I must tell you, but it is all for your own good, and not to spite my lady, though, to speak truth, I have little reason to love her. But you are not speaking thus of my aunt, I hope, Annette, said Emily gravely. Yes, mademoiselle, but I am, though, and if you knew as much as I do, you would not look so angry. I have often and often heard the Signor and her talking over your marriage with the Count, and she always advised him never to give up to your foolish whims, as she was pleased to call them, but to be resolute and compel you to be obedient, whether you would or no. And I am sure my heart has ached a thousand times, and I have thought, when she was so unhappy herself, she might have felt a little for other people. And I thank you for your pity, Annette, said Emily, interrupting her. But my aunt was unhappy then, and that disturbed her temper perhaps. Or, I think, I am sure, you may take away, Annette, I have done. Dear mademoiselle, you have eaten nothing at all. Do try, and take a little bit more. Disturbed her temper truly. Why, her temper is always disturbed, I think. And at Thalouse, too, I have heard my lady talk of you and Monsieur Valancourt to Madame Merval and Madame Vaison, often and often in a very ill-natured way, as I thought, telling them what a deal of trouble she had to keep you in order, and what a fatigue and distress it was to her, and that she believed you would run away with Monsieur Valancourt if she was not to watch you closely and that you connived at his coming about the house at night, and... Good God! exclaimed Emily, blushing deeply. It is surely impossible my aunt could thus have represented me. Indeed, ma'am, I say nothing more than the truth, and not all of that. But I thought, myself, she might have found something better to discourse about than the faults of her own niece, even if you had been in fault, mademoiselle, but I did not believe a word of what she said, 
but my lady does not care what she says against anybody, for that matter. However, that may be, Annette, interrupted Emily, recovering her composure. It does not become you to speak of the faults of my aunt to me. I know you have meant well, but say no more. I have quite dined. Annette blushed, looked down, and then began slowly to clear the table. Is this, then, the reward of my ingenuousness, said Emily, when she was alone? The treatment I am to receive from a relation, an aunt, who ought to have been the guardian, not the slander of my reputation, who, as a woman, ought to have respected the delicacy of female honour, and, as a relation, should have protected mine. But to utter falsehoods on so nice a subject, to repay the openness, and I may say with honest pride the propriety of my conduct, with slanders required a depravity of heart, such as I could scarcely have believed existent, such as I weep to find in a relation. Oh, what a contrast does her character present to that of my beloved father, while envy and low cunning form the chief traits of hers. His was distinguished by benevolence and philosophic wisdom. But now, let me only remember, if possible, that she is unfortunate. Emily threw her veil over her, and went down to walk upon the ramparts, the only walk, indeed, which was open to her, though she often wished that she might be permitted to ramble among the woods below, and still more that she might sometimes explore the sublime scenes of the surrounding country. But as Montoni would not suffer her to pass the gates of the castle, she tried to be contented with the romantic views she beheld from the walls. The peasants, who had been employed on the fortifications, had left their work, and the ramparts were silent and solitary. Their lonely appearance, together with the gloom of a lowering sky, assisted the musings of her mind, and threw over it a kind of melancholy tranquillity, such as she often loved to indulge. She turned to observe a fine effect of the sun, as his rays, suddenly streaming from behind a heavy cloud, lighted up the west towers of the castle, while the rest of the edifice was in deep shade, except that, through a lofty Gothic arch, adjoining the tower which led to another terrace, the beams darted in full splendour, and showed the three strangers she had observed in the morning. Perceiving them, she started, and a momentary fear came over her, as she looked up the long rampart and saw no other persons. While she hesitated, they approached. The gate at the end of the terrace, whither they were advancing, she knew was always locked and she could not depart by the opposite extremity, without meeting them. But, before she passed them, she hastily drew a thin veil over her face, which did, indeed, but ill conceal her beauty. They looked earnestly at her, and spoke to each other in bad Italian, of which she caught only a few words, but the fierceness of their countenances, now that she was near enough to discriminate them, struck her yet more than the wild singularity of their air and dress had formerly done. It was the countenance and figure of him 
who walked between the other two, that chiefly seized her attention, which expressed a sullen haughtiness and a kind of dark watchful villainy that gave a thrill of horror to her heart. All this was so legibly written on his features, as to be seen by a single glance, for she passed the group swiftly, and her timid eyes scarcely rested on them a moment. Having reached the terrace, she stopped, and perceived the stranger standing in the shadow of one of the turrets, gazing after her, and seemingly by their action in earnest conversation. She immediately left the rampart, and retired to her apartment. In the evening Montoni sat late, carousing with his guests in the cedar chamber. His recent triumph over Count Morano, or, perhaps, some other circumstance, contributed to elevate his spirits to an unusual height. He filled the goblet often, and gave a loose to merriment and talk. The gaiety of Cavani, on the contrary, was somewhat clouded by anxiety. He kept a watchful eye upon Veresi, whom, with the utmost difficulty, he had hitherto restrained from exasperating Montoni further against Morano, by a mention of his late taunting words. One of the company exultingly recurred to the event of the preceding evening. Veresi's eyes sparkled. The mention of Morano led to that of Emily, of whom they were all profuse in the praise, except Montoni, who sat silent, and then interrupted the subject. When the servants had withdrawn, Montoni and his friends entered into close conversation, which was sometimes checked by the irrecible temper of Veresi, but in which Montoni displayed his conscious superiority, by that decisive look and manner, which always accompanied the vigour of his thought, and to which most of his companions submitted, as to a power that they had no right to question, though of each other's self-importance they were jealousy scrupulous. Amidst this conversation, one of them imprudently introduced again the name of Morano, and Veresi, now more heated by wine, disregarded the expressive looks of Cavani, and gave some dark hints of what had passed on the preceding night. These, however, Montoni did not appear to understand, for he continued silent in his chair, without discovering any emotion, while the choler of Veresi, increasing with the apparent insensibility of Montoni, he at length told the suggestion of Morano that this castle did not lawfully belong to him, and that he would not willingly leave another murder on his conscience. Am I to be insulted at my own table, and by my own friends? said Montoni, with a countenance pale in anger. Why are the words of that madman repeated to me? Veresi, who had expected to hear Montoni's indignation, poured forth against Morano, and answered by thanks to himself, looked with astonishment at Cavani, who enjoyed his confusion. Can you be weak enough to credit the assertions of a madman? rejoined Montoni. Or, what is the same thing, a man possessed by the spirit of vengeance? But he has succeeded too well. You believe what he said? 
Signor, said Verissi, we believe only what we know. How, interrupted Montoni sternly, produce your proof. We believe only what we know, repeated Verissi, and we know nothing of what Morano asserts. Montoni seemed to recover himself. I am hasty, my friends, said he. With respect to my honour, no man shall question it with impunity. You did not mean to question it. These foolish words are not worth your remembrance or my resentment. Verissi, here is to your first exploit. Success to your first exploit, re-echoed the whole company. Noble Signor, replied Verissi, glad to find he had escaped Montoni's resentment. With my good will, you shall build your ramparts of gold. Pass the goblet, cried Montoni. We will drink to Signora Sanobert, said Cavani. By your leave, we will first drink to the lady of the castle, said Bertolini. Montoni was silent. To the lady of the castle, said his guests. He bowed his head. It much surprises me, Signor, said Bertolini, that you have so long neglected this castle. It is a noble edifice. It suits our purpose, replied Montoni, and is a noble edifice. You know not, it seems, by what mischance it came to me. It was a lucky mischance, be it what it may, Signor, replied Bertolini, smiling. I would that one so lucky had befallen me. Montoni looked gravely at him. If you will attend to what I say, he resumed, you shall hear the story. The countenances of Bertolini and Baresi expressed something more than curiosity. Cabernet, who seemed to feel none, had probably heard the relation before. It is now near twenty years, said Montoni, since the castle came into my possession. I inherit it by the female line. The lady, my predecessor, was only distantly related to me. I am the last of her family. She was beautiful and rich. I wooed her, but her heart was fixed upon another, and she rejected me. It is probable, however, that she was herself rejected of the person, whoever he might be, on whom she bestowed her favour, for a deep and settled melancholy took possession of her, and I have reason to believe she put a period to her own life. I was not at the castle at the time, but, as there are some singular and mysterious circumstances attending that event, I shall repeat them. Repeat them, said a voice. Montoni was silent. The guests looked at each other to know who spoke, but they perceived that each was making the same inquiry. Montoni, at length, recovered himself. We are overheard, said he. We will finish this subject another time. Pass the goblet. The cavaliers looked round the wide chamber. Here is no person but ourselves, said Verissi. Pray, Signor, proceed. Did you hear anything? said Montoni. We did, said Bertolini. It could be only fancy, said Verissi, looking round again. We see no person beside ourselves, and the sound I thought I heard seemed within the room. Pray, Signor, go on. Montoni paused a moment, and then proceeded in a lowered voice, while the cavaliers drew nearer to attend. 
Yea are to know, signors, that the Lady Laurentini had for some months shown symptoms of a dejected mind, nay, of a disturbed imagination. Her mood was very unequal. Sometimes she was sunk in calm melancholy, and at others, as I have been told, she betrayed all the symptoms of frantic madness. It was one night in the month of October, after she had recovered from one of those fits of excess, and had sunk again into her usual melancholy, that she retired alone to her chamber, and forbade all interruption. It was the chamber at the end of the corridor, signors, where we had the affray, last night. From that hour she was seen no more. How seen no more, said Bertolini. Was not her body found in the chamber? Were her remains never found, cried the rest of the company altogether. Never, replied Montoni. What reasons were there to suppose she destroyed herself then, said Bertolini. Ah, what reasons, said Veresi. How happened it that her remains were never found? Although she killed herself, she could not bury herself. Montoni looked indignantly at Veresi, who began to apologise. Your pardon, Signor, said he. I did not consider that the lady was your relative when I spoke of her so lightly. Montoni accepted the apology, but the Signor will oblige us with the reasons which urged him to believe that the lady committed suicide. Those I will explain hereafter, said Montoni. At present, let me relate a most extraordinary circumstance. This conversation goes no further, Signors. Listen, then, to what I am going to say. Listen, said a voice. They were all again silent, and the countenance of Montoni changed. This is no illusion of the fancy, said Cavani, at length breaking the profound silence. No, said Bertolini, I heard it myself now. Yet here is no person in the room but ourselves. This is very extraordinary, said Montoni, suddenly rising. This is not to be borne. Here is some deception, some trick. I will know what it means. All the company rose from their chairs in confusion. It is very odd, said Bertolini. Here is really no stranger in the room. If it is a trick, Signor, you will do well to punish the author of it severely. A trick? What else can it be? said Cavani, affecting a laugh. The servants were now summoned, and the chamber was searched, but no person was found. The surprise and the consternation of the company increased. Montoni was discomposed. We will leave this room, said he, and the subject of our conversation also. It is too solemn. His guests were equally ready to quit the apartment but the subject had roused their curiosity, and they entreated Montoni to withdraw to another chamber, and finish it. No entreaties could, however, prevail with him. Notwithstanding his efforts to appear at ease, he was visibly and greatly disordered. "'Why, Signor, you are not superstitious,' cried Veresi, jeeringly. "'You, who have so often laughed at the credulity of others,' I am not superstitious, replied Montoni, regarding him with stern displeasure. 
though I know how to despise the commonplace sentences which are frequently uttered against superstition. I will inquire further into this affair. He then left the room, and his guests, separating for the night, retired to their respective apartments. End of Volume 2 Chapter 7